Welcome to Songcraft, Spotlight on Songwriters, a bi-weekly podcast featuring in-depth conversations with and about the creators of lyrics and music that stand the test of time. I'm Scott B. Bomar. And I'm Paul Duncan. Songcraft is part of the American Songwriter Podcast Network, which can be found at americansongwriter.com. To make sure you don't miss an episode, please take a moment to subscribe to our show via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also keep up with us on social media by searching for one word, Songcraft Show, or visit us at songcraftshow.com. Our guest on this episode of Songcraft is Nancy Wilson of Heart. The Rock and Roll Hall of Famer and four-time Grammy nominee will join us to chat about self-pinned classics such as Crazy on You, Magic Man, Barracuda, and Never, as well as her work scoring films and her upcoming debut solo album, You and Me. Part one. You know, Paul, on this episode of Songcraft, we're going to be talking with Rock and Roll Hall of Famer Nancy Wilson, which is amazing. That's pretty awesome. Yeah. Um, and... and while preparing for this interview, I was listening to some tracks from a compilation that Hart put out in 2012 called Strange Euphoria. And I always think it's interesting when a band puts out like a retrospective and they choose like alternate versions or, you know, different takes on songs that we're familiar with. Because you figure like if somebody puts out a box set and you're going to buy that box set, you probably have their massive right. hits right. <laughs> already, you know. So it's nice to give the fans, you know, something different. Um, but one of the things that I think they chose to do that is is really cool uh, on that collection is include demo versions of like Magic Man and, and Crazy on You. So you kind of hear... You know, before the well-known records of these songs, you know, they created demos. So yeah. they would sort of map out what the song sounded like. And uh, it just got me thinking, you know, th- this is what people did in the 70s, you know, when Hart was, was making this record. And demos are still an important part of the process today. They are. And, you know, if, if you think that you're somebody who might put out a box set one day... <laughs> And you want your demos to sound good when your fans actually pick up that box set. I got a place for you to go. Hmm, Where's that? It's called Pearl Snap Studios. And if you're a Songcraft listener, you've heard this name before. But I'd like to think that every Songcraft listener will eventually put out a box set. I I would hope so. I would say that would be a success on our part. Yeah. And and if that's going to be in your future, seriously, you don't want your demos to suck. So take these songs that you've written. You know they're good. Send him over to Justin at Pearl Snap Studios and let him and his team of producers turn those things into slamming demos that you can pitch to anybody and they can stand the test of time when your box set finally hits Amazon. Let Justin turn your song into an absolute bop. <laughs> <laughs> no, but, you know, Paul, the, the problem is that Justin lives in Nashville and uh, I don't, so I probably can't work with him. No, you get a plane ticket and take the song on a reel-to-reel to his house and just, you know, leave it on the front porch. I think that's how this works. <laughs> no, of course not. You send him an MP3. You don't have to go to Nashville. That's the great part about this. Wherever you live, wherever you're making music, you can actually send these things to him through the magic of the interwebs. Mm, indeed. And, and 
again, just because Justin's in Nashville doesn't mean he only does country music. He does country music demos masterfully. Uh, He does rock demos. He does pop demos. Pretty much whatever genre it is that that you've got in mind, Justin can do it really well. The guy is a whiz. So check out Justin and his team at pearlsnapstudios.com. And don't forget to tell them that Songcraft sent you to get a little discount there. So, speaking of Nancy Wilson, can I just throw out one question for you? What's that? How cool is it that we're talking to her today? Dude, amazing. I mean, seriously. I mean, growing up, you know, watching rock and roll, I I think, honestly, I I looked at Nancy Wilson, and I know I was a little boy growing up in Tennessee, and Nancy Wilson was like this female rock star, but I kind of wanted to grow up and be Nancy Wilson. (laughs) Just, you know, her swagger, the way she played, these songs, I mean, they're dangerous, they're heavy. I just think Nancy Wilson is the coolest. Yeah, amazing. And, you know, we are wrapping up our Women's History Month celebration. We um, started by talking to Jeannie Seeley, who is known as a Grand Ole Opry star, but kind of has this secret history writing songs for Willie Nelson and all these luminaries. And, yeah. you know, she's not really regarded as a songwriter. And, and there's a reason for that, uh, because yeah. at the time that she was writing songs, she was uh, kind of excluded <laughs> from the club right. based on just for being a woman. Um, and, and we talked to uh, Jackie DeShannon, who had some amazing stories about being part of what was kind of effectively the first songwriting team of, of two women um, and, and kind of the, the uphill battle that, that she had to face. And so we, we started the month with looking at country music. We moved to pop and now to move to the rock world. I mean, the Wilson sisters were really pioneers when it comes to women in rock. I mean, you had, you know, your Wanda Jackson's, you had solo artists who had sort of put their foot in, in rock and roll, obviously in the fifties. I mean, you could even go back to, uh, Sister Rosetta Tharp or, or women who sort of helped define what rock and roll was. But when you're talking about the rock era, you're talking about Stones, Zeppelin. Well, I think the band era in particular. Yeah, you know? yeah. I mean, I can't think of, of any uh, female rock band that really had the kind of success that Hart did that, that would have predated them. And, you know, you'll see these lists and they'll be like, you know, the best female guitar players or whatever. And, and <laughs> right. it's, it's kind of, you know, you, you look at somebody like Nancy and you're like, that qualifier, why, why do we have to have that qualifier, yeah. you know, female guitar player? She's just a, a great guitar player. Yeah. And these are just great, great songs. I mean, Barracuda, Crazy on You, Straight On. I mean, oh. insane. And then there are these parts of her career that people don't really know all that much about. You know, yeah. number one, that they were kind of like, you know... Uh, part of the founding members of the Seattle scene, let's say. I mean, they yeah. they were really respected by all the Seattle bands that came in the 90s. And then this work that she did scoring, you know, films like Almost Famous and Vanilla Sky and Jerry Maguire. I mean, she's been everywhere. Yeah, yeah. It's incredible just to see the uh, the kind of creativity and, and the boundlessness in some ways to what she's done. And I think, you know, it's fitting for us to kind of end our celebration of, of this Women's History Month with someone who really did pave the way um, for little girls. You know, I think any little girl nowadays would be like, yeah, I want to pick up a guitar and I want to rock. Yeah. You know, that was that was not something, you know, when Ann and Nancy were coming up, there just wasn't a model for that. Right. And, you That's know, true. thanks to them and thanks to other women who have, you know, come behind them. Um, that is like a thing now, you know, that that you don't have to you don't have to be a girl guitarist. <laughs> Girls right. can just be guitarists. Right. You know, they can be part of rock bands, you know. 
know, and um, and that's why we've really been looking at this this whole month is to, you know, women's history is about celebrating where we've been and the people who took risks and the people who went up against the odds and the people who were kind of bucking the way that things were done to establish a whole new paradigm and a whole new way of doing things and kicking those doors open for, you know, the girls that would come behind. Yeah. Well, let me ask you a question. Ready. When we're about to wrap this whole thing up today and take off the headphones and put the mics down or whatever, and you're going to crank up one heart song. What is it? Crazy on you. Really? Yeah. How about you? I think I might go magic, man. Oh, that's a good one. That scorching guitar line at the beginning, man. Yeah. (sighs) Yeah. And I love the middle section of magic, man. Where for like two minutes it just it's goes, a different song. Yeah, it just goes <laughs> into this amazing like instrumental section that's like it's like hey, you know what we're we're in the middle of this song let's go on a journey. <laughs> totally. <laughs> yeah, I, I I think I'm probably gonna have to listen to about five or six of them on the way home. I might even uh, I might even take the long way. Right. Totally. Um, and, and I don't want to disappoint you, but I'm not going to put the headphones down. I wear the headphones all the time because I'm, I want to be ready in case an interview breaks out. <laughs> That's kind of how I picture you. <laughs> yeah. You're you know, all beard and headphones. I'm, exactly, I'm committed. Part two. Four-time Grammy nominee and Rock and Roll Hall of Famer Nancy Wilson is best known for her work in the band Heart, which she and her sister Anne helped propel to rock superstardom in the 1970s thanks to self-penned classics such as Crazy on You, Magic Man, Dreamboat Annie, Barracuda, Little Queen, Heartless, Straight On, Dog and Butterfly, and Even It Up. In the mid-1980s, they reinvented themselves as mainstream radio hitmakers with a string of successful singles, including What About Love, Never, These Dreams, Nothing At All, Alone, Who Will You Run To, There's The Girl, All I Want To Do Is Make Love To You, and Stranded. Though she has sold over 35 million albums worldwide as a member of Heart, Nancy's songwriting efforts extend beyond the confines of the band. She has written songs and scores for films including Say Anything, Jerry Maguire, Almost Famous, Vanilla Sky, and Elizabethtown. She is also a founding member of the bands The Lovemongers and Road Case Royale. Though she previously released a solo acoustic set called Live at McCabe's Guitar Shop, Nancy's debut studio album as a solo artist, You and Me, will be released on May 7th. Nancy, welcome to Songcraft. Well, hello. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, you have, you know, you've been in the public eye as a musician and a songwriter for more than 45 years now, which is amazing. Um, But on May 7th, you're going to release your first ever studio album as a solo artist called You and Me. Um, And you've done a good bit of film scoring, but most of your traditional songwriting has been for a band situation, whether that be Heart or The Lovemongers or Road Case Royale. Um, when it comes to making a record with your name on it and writing songs for your voice, uh, do you approach the process differently at all as compared to what you've typically done in the past for a band setting? Yes, it's, um, yeah, it's an interesting sort of a freedom this, this time around for me because, um, you know, I've done solo writing for my own solo things that, things that didn't necessarily wind up, you know, in the framework of heart. One of my many bands, <laughs> um, it's uh, an interesting, almost like an assignment, because the, being a year exactly now in lockdown, where there's no vortex to suck me out of my house <laughs> and on the bus and down the road and from town to town to town and stage yeah. to stage and stages and stages. And 
um, which is mostly what my life has been all about this whole time, you know, with with heart in particular. So, sure. um, so having been, you know, kind of, <laughs> you know, like sit down and shut up and go home, you know, <laughs> I wasn't sure how to do that exactly at first. And, you know, I tried the thousand piece jigsaw puzzle and that didn't really pan out <laughs> for me. So <laughs> it's a little more patience than I had really had. And it was going to take so long, I'd never get my dining room table back either. So <laughs> anyway, <laughs> um, and we just had recently moved up to the Northern California, Sonoma area. And here at this new place, which is so a really good place to be locked down in, because especially now because there's a, a separate apartment, uh, separate from the main house above the uh, big garage area. So... Mm-hmm. I can go upstairs and, you know, have my apartment all to myself with my guitars and my amps and my really good microphones. So I purchased some gear, you know, like, let's let's think about this for a minute. I, I, I might have a lot of time on my hands right. where I could actually access my, you know, previous self in a lot of ways hmm. uh, as a writer and try to come up with some new stuff on my own without the challenge of trying to fit it just for myself, you know, for once, and maybe not to try to make it fit Anne's voice or fit the heart format or, you know, um, be perfectly suited to a live stage setting and all those various, you know, songwriting kind of hurdles I've always been used to kind of working with sure yeah and those are the parameters and and so there's kind of no parameters this time so Mm -hmm. i i started out by writing a song channeling my inner paul simon and trying to write a song like that uh called we meet again which borrowed from a guitar riff that i actually had written initially for jerry mcguire the film kind of mentioning that your your previous self and to to sort of continue that that theme of looking back um the title track of the you and me album is a tribute to your mother and with lines like we talk endlessly and we stay up too late meeting in some suspended state no reason to hurry don't need to worry because you've always shown me the way home i'd love to hear about what impact your mom had on you in terms of helping to create an environment that you know allowed you to flourish as a musician a songwriter and creative person as you were growing up that's a really good question. Um, you know, we were a military family, and uh, our dad was gone a lot, you know, fighting the wars. And um, she was the strong military wife who had to move over and over and over and over, like move many times, move, the, you know, just uproot and move 25 times, hmm. you know, while we were growing up. Uh, from, you know, 
base to base to base, and including Taiwan for a couple of years. So we were so used to it was like earlier touring experience. We we were never one place very long at all. <laughs> but um, but yeah, she had such an impact on me because her she was a steel magnolia of a woman. She was powerful. She she could be ice cold to somebody that was offensive, you know, and she was also really elegant um, and nurturing, um, but you didn't want to cross her, you know, you didn't want to see that war face, definitely mm. not, so um, she was the mom and the and the dad mm. all, most of the time growing up, but she had to yeah. fill both of those shoes, so she was some, some kind of amazing woman, she played piano, she studied mail-order musical studies like music theory and music history, and, you know, we always had a spinet, like a rental spinet in the house, mm. um, and and she was, she was a studier, and she studied, you know, the cradle of civilization type studies, too, like she's a history buff and wanted to always travel, you know, Greece and did and stuff like that later. But anyway, so she was a beautifully self-taught, musical, um, talented mother. She she could sew costumes for Halloween, you know. Wow. She's a good cook. Um, like my first memory uh, through the bars of a crib, actually, were her voice and her face singing a song called Curly-Headed Baby to me. A lullaby, you know. So, I mean, they just don't build them like they used to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean. Well, the earliest song of yours that I'm aware of is Through Eyes and Glass, which was released under the name Ann Wilson and the Daybreaks on the tiny Topaz label in 1969. You've done your homework. <laughs> oh, my God. Wow. Round the station, darkness falls. Silence lays against the walls And a girl waiting there With gentle hands for a man And there within the glass Her face wiser than the mask Reflecting what she wants to be What he wants to see been about 15 years old at the time, which means that you got started as a writer pretty early on. Um, tell us about some of those early songwriting efforts and how you and your sister were figuring out your process at that point. Oh, yeah. Um, well, you know, the first song we really wrote was really bad. And <laughs> it, it was a couple of songs. We were trying to be like writers like Bob Dylan that had protests, you know, protest music. With music songs with opinions, you know. Right. Of course, we're a couple of little white girls from, you know, <laughs> the suburbs. So <laughs> we had no idea what we were pushing against exactly. But we wrote a song called Mr. Jones. Like, leave me alone, Mr. Jones. You get me down. <laughs> you know, <Right. laughs> pretty bad. Um, <laughs> and, you know, you got to start somewhere, I guess. Right. But, uh, and we... We tried to write a song that was kind of like cherished by the association too. That that was like we were trying on 
per- personas, mm. you know. Mm. And that was a really bad song, too. It was like, it was so corny. It was just beyond super sweet. Right, Too right. sweet. <laughs> sweet for, for any appetite. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, so we kind of, we realized, you know, okay, well, that's bad. You know, <laughs> right. we play, it, play it for our family and stuff and friends, and they'd be like, yeah, uh, <laughs> really not not going wild or anything. So, um, and then we just kind of kept after it because we thought we 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 were learning all, all the all the Beatles songs, mm. and we were learning all the top forty radio songs, and we were forming little bands with girls from school that we would just enlist. Want to be in a band? <laughs> like from the choir mostly, and. So we could get harmony parts going, and me and Anne would both be playing guitar, so we'd have like four girls, uh, names like the Rapunzel, you know, <laughs> or the Viewpoints. <laughs> right, right. Um, and make posters, and Anne actually even got little business cards printed out. Oh. And like, you know, uh, folk music and popular ballads. Well, many girls your age fell in love with the Beatles, you know, because they thought they were cute. Um, you and Anne essentially looked to them as heroes to imitate, and it, you, you didn't want to be the Beatles' girlfriends. You wanted to be the Beatles, um, and exactly. you know th- there weren't really women in rock bands to look to as role models at that time. But it doesn't seem that that deterred you guys, or maybe even occurred to you that it could be a deterrent in any way. Um, but you, you wrote in your book, "Kicking and Dreaming: A Story of Heart, Soul, and Rock and Roll." Uh, we had no idea that being females in rock and roll would be an issue we would face at every turn. Um, and I'm curious, if your current day self could travel back in time, knowing what you know now, what would you want to tell your younger self about guarding and nurturing that creative spirit in the face of the challenges that you were going to have to deal with as rockers who just so happened to not be male? What would you tell your younger self? I love that <laughs> question. Well... You know, I'd say what my mom actually said to us, to me, when I, after a, a stint in university for about a year and a half, to kind of declare my independence from being Anne's little shadow before I joined the band, since there was an open invitation to join the band, um, I told her I was just going to go ahead now, and then my mom said, well, just remember who you are. <laughs> mm-hmm. And when you're going, you're, you're heading to Tinseltown now, and because she had every um, belief that we we're going to succeed, because she knew what kind of talent, how much confidence we'd already gained at that point already, since having started so young and all, and um, so she was just like, you know, don't let them mess up who you are, and mm. you're probably going to find that it's it's a hard road to hoe. And, you know, she was a big fan of, of Judy Garland and stuff. And, you know, you watch um, The Star is Born, you know, the, the original. And, mm-hmm. and you know, she, she had that blueprint in her mind that I was headed for that kind of trouble. And hmm. she was pretty correct about that. <laughs> because, it's, you know, there's just, there's just so much more than you ever expect in your young, hopeful innocence that you're going to encounter in the music industry. And the curveballs come mainly from the business end of things. Yeah. Where, you know, you're going to get gypped and you're going to get tricked 
mm-hmm. and you're going to be duped, you know, yeah. <laughs> and and used and taken advantage of, and a lot of things like that. And the expectations can be really, can be a little steep. Mm-hmm. Who you're supposed to look like, what you're supposed to look like, what's the image you want to portray. You know, especially for women, that's more to be expected, you mm-hmm. know. Yeah, yeah. You've got to present, and you you do your hair and your makeup. A lot of dudes just go out with their jeans and their t-shirts. <laughs> right. But yeah. yeah, so I think that was wise, um, a cautionary thing for her to tell me. Mm, yeah. <laughs> well, during your college days, you were kind of doing this solo acoustic thing, but then in the early '70s, you rejoined forces with Anne, and she was fronting a little rock band called Heart. Uh, <laughs> in case anyone's ever heard of that. <laughs> And the two of you became the primary songwriters and the driving force of that group and found success with the very first album release, Dreamboat Annie, in 1975. Now, the first single issued in the U.S. was Crazy on You, which is quite a way to come out of the gate. Um, <laughs> just opens with that amazing acoustic guitar intro before kicking into the rock groove. Um, and you are, of course, renowned as an incredible guitarist. And I'd be curious to know, you know, as far as the, the guitar parts themselves go, obviously, you know, when you're writing, you're putting together the chord structure and things like that with an instrument. But, you know, the, the parts themselves, you know, the edgy riffs and things like that, are, are they part of the actual writing process for you right there at the birth of a song? Or do you view that part as kind of separate, you know, you know, production and arrangement? Yeah. We, well, we... Um we were big Moody Blues fans around that time. You know, they made some pretty good trippin' albums, for sure. <laughs> and there was one song called A Question of Balance that was, you know, why do we never get an answer? You know, with that ting ding 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 the chugging guitar part. And we thought we should write something like that with the acoustic doing something like that. And so... We were up in Point Roberts, B.C., living up there doing cabaret shows in Vancouver. And we were all living in a big band house, you know, up there. And uh, I happened to actually have a really bad fever at the time, and I was delirious. But Anne ran ran into our bedroom and said, I've got these words for that idea that we wanted to do, like the Moody Blues. And so she... uh, she had all of the lyrics written for Crazy on You already. Mm-hmm. And it was really good. It's, I was in my delirium. I was like, that's really good. <laughs> so when I can actually understand anything, I'll try to write the, the part for that. <laughs> right. And so it, a couple of days later, I guess, probably, um, you know, I kind of had it. It came pretty quickly, mm-hmm. which is great. And then... When that happens, it's always so great. Like, oh, wow, well, I get, you know, A minor to F. It's a real satisfying yeah. way to play chords like that. Yeah. And um, in that rhythm. So, and then, of course, the other guitar player, Roger, at the time, made the, the iconic riff, you know, for the da-da-da-da-da-da, yeah. which put the edge on it, which made it even cool, more cool rock sound, because it was less likely that you'd hear a big rock riff with acoustic, you know, which is one of the things I brought to the band, I think, was the the touch of a rock and acoustic sound with a regular rock sound, you know, like we kind of blended those elements. That was sort of a signature of our sound, I think, on the first album. 
songwriting with the guitar or a key, keyboard or a piano, um, mainly the guitar, usually acoustic. It's like the structure of a song. It needs to kind of be in place for the lyrics to be part of that structure. So you can have lyric ideas first, um, or you can have guitar part ideas first. You know, even little snippets of... Um, melodic pieces of something or other here or there you can you can build off of something like that too so or just find a groove you know yeah. so um i guess i come to answer your question i kind of come at it every which way depending on where the muse came from you know because you're always kind of chasing the muse around in your head um sometimes the muse kind of strikes when you're almost falling asleep and you're like damn i have to write this down <laughs> or damn i have to record this in my phone <laughs> i was almost getting some sleep for a change you know yeah <laughs> or, yeah the worst when you actually don't think you need to record it and then you forget it <laughs> oh yeah so i'll for sure remember this i'll just go ahead and go to sleep you wake up it's like what was that again <laughs> you know? so yeah that's that's always you know, you kind of, after a while, you go, okay, I have to get this down somewhere because I'll never really remember it like I think I will, ever. Yeah. So yeah. it's a fleeting sort of gossamer, magical thing that you can capture if you're lucky. Yeah. Um, and I think during the time being here during this lockdown, you know, I really, I felt very inspired. It was the blessing inside the larger curse, mm -hmm. for sure. Yeah. Your second U.S. single, which became your first top 10 pop hit, was Magic Man. And I love the demo of that song, which is just Anne's voice and an acoustic guitar and electric guitar. It's it's just so <laughs> immediate, you know. Come on home, girl, he said with a smile. You don't have to love me and let's get high But try to understand, try to understand. It was kind of like a dun, 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 dun. the groove was yep. more kind of a square <laughs> rock beat. Right. And so when we listened back to the demo, because we were trying to write it, we were trying to find the, the groove for the song, you know, as a band in the big room together mm -hmm. at the same time. I mean, people used to write more often in the actual studio, you know, when it wasn't so spendy, probably, and mm -hmm. when there was more support from record labels to allow you to develop in the studio. Yeah. And, you know, so, anyway, so, yeah, we kind of listened back, and we were like, ooh, is that too much like a, you know, pass around the peace pipe, you know? <laughs> right. So, um, <laughs> that's a Canadian joke. <laughs> anyway, um, <laughs> want to smoke some salmon? <laughs> but anyway... <laughs> Anyway, so we kind of worked, we kind of took a while, it took a while to kind of figure out a way to switch up the the groove of the chord structure. Mm -hmm. So it's like, da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-
da, da. Right. And so, you know, it was like, that's it. Yeah. 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 So it's like, you know when it's right. And you have, sometimes you just have to try a whole bunch of stuff that's wrong first. <laughs> in those days, in terms of the actual writing process, um, did the two of you intentionally set aside times to get together to work on, on songs or, or how did you kind of divide the labor in terms of, of lyrics and melody, you know, just kind of that nuts and bolts kind of stuff? Oh yeah. Um, well, Anne and I used to sit together just in order to try to write a song and we both had notebooks full of ideas of lyric ideas, poems, you know, sort of blank book stuff that, I keep in a suitcase from from even earlier, like high school, junior high, you know, just in case there was like a little um, scrap of paper somewhere that might have something brilliant you could plug into a song you're working on, you know. So I still have all those suitcases, the old-fashioned Tweety kind of suitcases full Mm. of notebooks that I still went, not this time in particular, but... You know, the other Heart um, albums we were trying to write for, I'd still go pouring through all those notebooks and my um, poetry resource books from college and my rhyming dictionary, (laughs) you know, and the the romantic tradition and European culture (laughs) book, you know. So you you could sort of read phrasing and just kind of scan through inspired writings and um, previous writing and and try to call through stuff like that just because you know we've we've always had an idea that when you're trying to write a song you know you want to write about something that's not just like oh he snubbed me or (laughs) you know know, he let me down he he went with another girl you know (laughs) Because it's just kind of a little, we just wanted something a little less shallow, shall we say, and yeah. than just the boy-girl type stuff. We wanted something a little more that feeds the human soul type stuff. Yeah. So we were always looking to deep, you know, we were always looking to be <laughs> more deep than right, right. your average rock band. Yeah. <laughs> this episode of Songcraft is sponsored by the new Taylor GT. Smaller size, bigger sound, serious fun. More and more guitar players want the comfort of a smaller acoustic guitar without having to skimp on sound, and that's especially true of songwriters who are often thinking about both portability and great quality. That led our friends over at Taylor Guitars to design a whole new class of guitar that could deliver on both fronts. Their latest release, the fun-to-play new GT, combines the fast, slinky feel of a compact acoustic with a rich, full-bodied voice that sonically punches above its weight class. Discover why Guitar Player Magazine called the GT one of the easiest playing guitars they've ever had their hands on and gave it their Editor's Pick Award. You can learn more about Taylor's new GT models at taylorguitars.com or take one for a spin at a Taylor dealer near you. By the time your second album, Little Queen, was released in 1977, you were bona fide rock stars and you had another hit on your hands with Barracuda. I understand that the creation of that song was basically channeling the anger you guys were feeling about being objectified and sexualized, uh, despite having just clearly established yourselves as a musical force to be reckoned with. 
tell us about the unfortunate circumstances that resulted in the creation of what is now a rock classic. Yeah, well, we were at some um, uh, album release party. A lot of biz people were there. Everybody was wearing the satin jackets in those days, you know. And um, this one particularly sleazy slime ball came up over to Anne and said, Hey, Anne, Annie, Annie, how's your lover? You know, pointing at me. And so the insinuation of that was so insulting, you know, that that we were the lovers because we were on the cover with bare shoulders next to each other. Who knows why or what or how salacious he wanted that to sound or or why he would be so insulting. I'll never know. But um, so Anne was just like, and walked away. You know, she turned on her boot heel (laughs) and stumped off and went back to the hotel room and wrote down the lyrics for Barracuda, wow. and me and Raj kind of found the groove for that, you know, pretty soon thereafter. We were also borrowing that for that groove. We were borrowing from a band called Nazareth that we toured Europe with, with Queen as, as well. And um, they had done a version of a Joni Mitchell song, This Flight Tonight, with exactly that groove. Like, look out the left, the captain said, you know. So when they heard Barracuda, they were really pissed off at us <laughs> because we they had a hit with it on the radio yeah and then we kind of took it and ran with it um but it was it was too late it was done so <laughs> i'll always love to remember where we were in boston in the summer time on a day off walking in the, the college district you know just having a day off in the sun feeling cool, you know, with our cool threads and <laughs> looking for more cool threads. <laughs> um, the, this car drives by on the street with their windows all down and Barracuda is blasting out of that car. <laughs> and nice. it was just like, oh, man, that song is made to blast out of car windows <laughs> oh, yeah. on a day like this in Boston. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I felt like the coolest rock star that ever walked the street of Boston. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> well, it's funny. I, I, as you were telling that story, I was thinking, where would rock and roll be without anger? And and then yeah. how these angry moments lead us into these transcendently beautiful moments of a sunny day with the windows down and an amazing day birthed out of a moment of anger. It's it's maybe the, the beauty that's of right. rock, you know? Um, well, That's really true. That's, a, that's like the definition of rock. Well, following the platinum-selling magazine album, you released the Dog and Butterfly record in 1978, which includes classics like the title track and the hit single Straight On.
This album introduced the public to Sue Ennis, who was a co-writer on every track on the album and has been a mainstay in your musical world, including collaborating with you on three songs on your You and Me album, including the title track, I'll Find You and Walk Away. Um, Talk a bit about Sue and what elements she brings to the writing process that has enhanced what you and Anne do. Anne and Sue uh, met each other in high school, the year of our Lord, 1968, I believe. And Anne had been, had appeared in the local Bellevue newspaper as a contest winner for having won an essay contest about why I love the Beatles. And so Sue recognized her from the, the local paper as one of her classmates. And so when she went to the school the next day, she sat behind Anne's desk, you know, the desk behind Anne's desk, and sang a very um, obscure sitar riff from the Love You Too song by George Harrison. Mm. You know, and um, and Anne turned right around and went, was like, is that the, the riff from Love You Too? And, you know, from that moment forward, it was Beatles, Beatles, Beatles. And mm. so we, uh, when I met Sue, I was probably, I don't know, 10, 12 or something. And she could play guitar, and she could also talk about Beatles for hours and look at beat magazines with pictures of the Beatles for hours and learn how to play Beatles songs on guitar for hours. So we pre- we proceeded to, to move ahead with our musical <laughs> journey with her for... Um, what would, you know, last at least 50 years already. And, but um, we decided we should try to write stuff because we were already, you know, jamming and, and doing like raga jams and things that the Beatles might be doing, something that might sound like the Beatles. <laughs> and so, yeah, we started to work on things with her. We tried to get her in our band, one of our bands, you know, but she wouldn't do it. She's just too shy. But yeah, we we started writing. And when we actually had a career going later, you know, she'd been working on her own kind of writing things. And we'd, we'd kind of send tapes to each other, like little reel-to-reels or cassettes. And so we'd, we'd send tapes to her and listen to ideas and send lyric ideas and in letters, you know, before we had cell phones. <laughs> but we got really excited about it all. And once we kind of had enough money, because we were in Hart and Hart was doing okay, um, we'd actually could afford getting on an airplane, flying and seeing her, you know, flying to Portland and from Seattle if we were at home whenever we could. Yeah. And we'd sit in a hotel room. We'd get a hotel, sit in a room on a weekend just with the sole purpose of writing songs. Mm. And just order room service, and you know, smoke some some weed, and, stuff. <laughs> and so yeah, we got little more by you know little by little more proficient, and we, we had a I think a steep standard of what we would allow ourselves to like, you know, <laughs> like it had to be good, and <laughs> so you know you have to work sort of harder, and keep applying yourself to towards it. I mean, the song Mr. All Wind is one of those songs that we sat for days, like the whole weekend, trying to even start. Hmm. And the, we knew the subject, 
we wanted to write about. You know, it was kind of like we wanted to write um, the uh, Ulysses of all songs, you know. (laughs) And so um, that was the theme we were talking about. I think Sue at one point said, God, we're just sitting here dead in the water, you know, just like a, a boat waiting for the wind. And we're like, oh, my God, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> so it was like, oh, yeah, we sure are. Yeah. And then the boat, you know, goes out in the calm waters, and you go out into your life, and you think, yeah, this will be a beautiful journey, and then it comes your storm, you know, and then the sirens are calling you, and you're... Then you you have to lash yourself to the mass. Oh my God! And you know. Stuff like that. Or it could have been a girl-boy kind of thing, you know, yeah. you never know. <laughs> I mean, e- even to get to the end of, of that story, you know, the, the way you're describing that session, there's a lot of persistence in it. You know, you're, you're waiting for the, the story to land on you, you know. And, and I see that kind of persistence you know, it, in a broad sense in the way you guys approach your career, you know, continuing to adapt and change. You know, after How Can I Refuse, which was a number one single on the Billboard Rock chart, you guys switched over to Capitol Records for the self-titled 1985 album. That, that really was practically kind of a reinvention of, of some of the music you were making you know into kind of a mainstream pop rock group and yielded a phenomenal streak of top 10 singles including what about love never these dreams nothing at all and you know looking at the credits on never i see the names holly knight gene block and connie and i understand that connie is a pseudonym and i'd love to know the origin of that one of the places we would go during our breaks would be a beautiful place in Cannon Beach, Oregon, where we we started to go there to write, you know, renting cabins. We eventually got places there, lived where we could stay for weeks at a time if we had it at the time, and just be there for writing and jam with, you know, electrics and acoustics and a drum machine and a little recording setup, stuff like that. And in the 80s, like during the self-titled album, we called ourselves Connie because the three of us, we called ourselves the Mighty Three, you know. Mm. We had nicknames for our threesome, yeah. like we were the Troika or we're the, the Mighty Three or we're <laughs> Connie. And it was just a one of those moments of hysterical hilarity where we got each other's humor so much that we saw this one ad, local ad for uh, a <laughs> performer who's going to play music at a at the local Tolavana Inn, you know, lounge. Yeah. And we saw this ad for this person called Connie Ted Slats. <laughs> and so we're like, what do you think that is? Is that a guy? Is Connie a man or is Connie a woman? 
I don't know. We just got on this binge of laughter. We don't where we were just paralyzed laughing, and it's like, well, it could be Connie. Anybody could be Connie. You know, you could be Connie. I could be Connie. We all three could be a Connie, and so it it became a whole thing where we'd go up. Somebody would be in the kitchen, and somebody else would be upstairs playing around on a piano or something, and it's like, hey, Connie, yeah, Connie, you know, and so. What is it, Connie? <laughs> no, I, I meant you, the other Connie. You know, so it's like I don't know. It's it's you had to be there, I guess. But <laughs> but it's it was just one of you know some some of the more delightful times we had was sharing those writing days and hours, um, and we made funny videos and comedy stuff. You know, just to kind of take breaks. You know, do funny mm-hmm. stuff on purpose. Because you can get so, like, deeply intense when you're trying to really pull stuff out of your soul and write something meaningful, you know. So, yeah, we had comic, you know, relief a lot of the time. Mm -hmm. Well, even though you and Anne were writers on half the songs on the album, uh, with the exception of Never, all the big hits were by outside writers. And drawing from outside writers was a big shift for the band since you'd pretty much written most of your big songs up to that point. Take us behind the scenes of that experience as a writer yourself of handing the reins in part over to other folks. Um, You know, was that a political process or, or a difficult process for you in some ways? It was kind of difficult. It was a little bit um, discouraging to feel like the reins were being taken away quite a bit because the, the, the character of that era was fueled, more ego-fueled than any other era before that for us. We could, we had the sense of that, um, largely I would assume because there was so much cocaine around and that, that makes egos bigger <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah. you know, and the, the record people and the management and record companies were more corporate than ever and they were more demanding on their artists, even not just us, you know, but all the big bands like um, Starship and Aerosmith and you know all of all the big the biggies mm-hmm. we were in kind of the same category. We were all being pressured to you know eat from the trough <laughs> of the LA stable songwriters, and you know we didn't necessarily want to do that. We didn't necessarily like it. We didn't necessarily think that a lot of those songs suited us suited us whatsoever Hmm. and I remember thinking um oh no not another victim song you know like Hmm. you he hurt me he let me down he left me you know yeah it it was just there were a lot of whiny you know wimpy songs that we really didn't like them yeah and um because we'd always had kind of a, a loftier plan for the songs we wanted to and in Anne's case in particular, she had to interpret them. She had to con- be convincing with these lyrics. You know, if we were going to do any, any of these songs, she had to portray the, the story convincingly and not on autopilot, not phoning it in. So that was a hard thing, harder for her, 
I, I think, than anything, hmm. um, any of it. Yeah. Because she she's never been a faker. She's not a poser. Mm-hmm. She always comes to play, and she means it. So she's authentic with it. Hmm. So, you know, I could see some looks on her face in a couple of those stages, stage <laughs> moments where she's kind of grim, gritting her teeth, you know, just grin and bear it. Right. <laughs> um, but, you know, we just, we, we, we rolled with it because it was survival, yeah. for one thing. Yeah. And it was, it, it was the MTV 80s, and there was pressure on us to roll with it, or we don't roll with you. <laughs> mm, well, right, so right. Yeah. you know, it was it was a little bit of a rock and a hard place, and yeah. some of those songs we we, we listened to like a, a whole briefcase full of cassettes one day at Anne's house of demos with demo singers, and you know, there's there was a, so many whiny ballads, and and we we just said, when we heard one thing we thought didn't suck, like alone, we were like, okay. That we can try out. We'll try that song. Yeah. And then we heard, you know, what about love? That has a little substance. We can try that one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then we then we heard these dreams. Our then producer uh, Ron Nevison was, you know, showing show and telling all these demo songs. He said, "This is not definitely not good for, good for heart, but it has pretty topin lyrics, and it's just a very interesting song." You want to hear that last because it's def- it's never would never work for heart. So I was like, oh, let's hear it because I love Bertie Topin's words. And as soon as I heard that song, I was like, I have to sing this one because well. <laughs> this one for me. Mine, 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 mine. <laughs> so, <laughs> so you know, then it's like, okay, well, okay, I guess maybe we could try it. Never hurts to try. Right. And so when um, Howard Kaufman the uh, um, management heard it it's like no way this is not a hard song no just don't even waste the time don't waste the money yeah and I pleaded and I begged and on my knees you know it's like just give me a chance on this one you know and then we made a demo of it where of course I had a cold and which ended up in the final version because <laughs> wow. everybody liked the way that part sounded and then after it was our first number one single, but then Howard Coffin came back and said, okay, remind me never to say what not to do again. (laughs) (laughs) Was Anne uh, like, hey, what the hell, how come you get to sing the first number one single? (laughs) Yeah, she was. (laughs) She really was. I mean, she, you know, she, yeah, she, she'd been there before me, and, you know, I went to a couple years of university just to get my shit together before I joined the <laughs> oh, band. Right. So she'd done a lot of uh, you know, heavy lifting before I even got there. Right. Well, the late 80s and early 90s found Hart on a continued hot streak of commercial success with massive hits like Alone, Who Will You Run To, All I Want to Do Is Make Love To You, and Stranded. But those singles were all written by powerhouse songwriters like Tom Kelly and Billy Steinberg and Diane Warren and Mutt Lang. And even though you were still writing plenty of Hart originals in that era, you know, your next season kind of found you embarking upon a very different kind of writing, which was writing songs and creating scores for films like Jerry Maguire, Almost Famous, Vanilla Sky, and Elizabethtown. 
And I'm curious, in what ways is is it different for you? You know, you're creating music then to fit a larger visual artistic work. You know, how is that different than the discipline of writing standalone pop and rock songs? Oh, yeah, it's it's kind of a world of difference. Um, it, you know, in my case, I was very lucky to be working on scores for, for Cameron Crowe, my then husband at the time, mm-hmm. for his film, because they're all of them very music-specific and rock music kind of kind of movies, you know. For Almost Famous, uh, for instance, which was my favorite, and Jerry Maguire, too, but anyway, I already had a couple of instrumental things recorded that I pulled out of my back pocket that actually worked really well in some of those scenes, like the deflowering, the kids scene. Mm-hmm. was a, a piece that I already had a, a cute little song done. So I put it towards uh, that scene in Almost Famous. The other stuff was so um, interesting to work on because when you're working on things where they're going to be up with picture, you really need to know what not to do, like when to not fill up the space especially mm-hmm. where a dialogue is going to be sitting, any kind of dialogue. You know, you have to imagine that you're the, you are the support atmosphere mm. for the words to the film, yeah. for the conversation on the film. So, and I, my, I think what my biggest takeaway learning curve from all of that stuff I did there was, was really um, how to simplify, you know, like, mm. Because in writing for for a rock band, you know, you want to keep sort of a, a vibe going, right. you know, sure. and something percolating, and then have it, you know, be the fire you want underneath where the words are going to be. So in this case, there was more speaking instead of lyrics, singing, you know, so hmm. that's where you kind of learn when to kind of hang midair for a little bit. and. Huh you know, kind of stay peripheral with the, with things and don't make any quick moves necessarily. <laughs> right, right. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, well, after a, a lengthy hiatus, Hart returned in 2004 with the Jupiter's Darling album, but your most recent Hart album was Beautiful Broken, which was released in 2016. Many of the songs on that record were reinterpretations of original material that had appeared on your three epic albums that were released between 1980 and 1983, and that kind of reminded me of a a solo acoustic set of yours that was released in 1999 as Live at McCabe's, where... Um, the only original heart compositions you included in that set were uh, Even It Up and Angels from that same early 80s period. And I'd be curious yeah. what draws you back to, to those songs specifically. Oh, that's, that's, that's interesting. Yeah, I realized, well, for one thing, the, um, that era, like Angels was always one of my favorite songs. Anne has a knack for doing songs like that that she writes herself, like Angels and like um, Nobody Home is another one. There's a beautiful thing she knows how to do just on her own that I've always been so fond of those songs. And I always envied her being able to be the the one that sang that song. So when I finally got a solo thing together, I was like, I've got it. I 
now now's my chance. You know, I get to sing angels. Angels, they didn't want to be. Suddenly they're free. songs from that time, though, those epic uh, era songs were, I thought, pretty poorly produced. Mm -hmm. They were just kind of really lackluster sounding to me. Um, and it was sort of a era where there was a lot of cocaine going on, you know, and there wasn't as much attention to the detail. I, I, I thought, I could tell later that it was just kind of flat. So when we got a chance, like, what would you re-record if you ever had the chance to re-record well those are the ones and um i thought beautiful broken was so much fun to work on because it was like the karmic justice <laughs> for some of those songs where i finally <laughs> right. got to hear them the way i wanted to hear them mm. you know yeah yeah <laughs> well you know, whenever we're talking about a career with the great depth and breadth of yours, I, I always feel like we're just skipping over eras and songs and flying through. And I, you know, <laughs> but I really want to take a moment to come back to your new album, You and Me, um, and particularly to ask you. You know, there are a couple songs in the project, like The Dragon and For Edward, um, that are tributes to fellow musicians who are no longer with us. Um, I'd just like to hear from you about you know the importance to you of celebrating fellow musicians with your own work. Oh, yeah. Um, well, with The Dragon, I wrote that in the, the 90s for Lane, before Lane had passed away, way before he left us. And for our listeners, uh, Lane Staley, uh, just to Oh, yeah, to yeah, that. Lane Staley that used to sing lead with Allison Chains. He was such a sweetheart, and we were so close to all those guys, all the the Seattle, you know, explosion rock guys, and... Yeah. And so, you know, you just see it coming. You could just see him, he's going to go down that dark ladder and hmm. he'll go there. So, I, you know, because I, 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 I cared about him, I loved him, and, and he, uh, he was just going there. And so there was nothing anybody could do about it. And so I wrote a very grunge-era sounding song about it. Um, and uh, we actually did a version of it on the, on First Things First, the Roadcase Real album, and then our record label guy that also worked with Roadcase, Tom Lipsky from Carry On Music, he said, would you please do the Dragon on your new album? And I mm. said, sure. <laughs> <laughs> Back by popular demand, of course I will. Yeah. So, um, and it's a whole different take on it, um, which I like the best of all the versions we ever did. So it was never bound to be a heart song for some reason we tried it a couple times and it just it just wasn't a fit so you just know when you know
you know, even with some great rockers on the album like Party at the Angel Ballroom, um, the record is is pretty heavy on ballads and, and acoustic uh, guitar stuff, which is just fantastic. Um, I wanted to ask you about one of the songs in particular, The In-Between. Um, the writer credits uh, only have uh, first initials. Uh, so it says N. Wilson, A. Stoller, and C. Crow. I'm, I'm curious if that's one of your sons. It is my son. That's my son, Curtis. Wow. Um, named after Kelly Curtis, who is my best friend since he was 10 hmm. and was Pro Jam's manager for, for eternity. Oh, yeah. But uh, anyway, he had a poem a couple of years ago that I happened to kind of run across. I think it was he just, you know, had probably had an assignment for a class assignment to write a poem. <laughs> so he wrote this thing called The In-Between, which was just a cute little play on words, you know, like, just turn the words around, and it's playful. And then when I kind of went back, it's like, can I put that in my notes, just in case I ever want to look at it some more? And lo and behold, you know, here comes the last four years, hmm. where everything's left or right or right or wrong, you know. Hmm. Um, and that whole era we just had, we're living through, it seemed really appropriate to me. Hmm. You know, if you're thinking that, if you're only thinking that in black and white, you know, you're going to lose wrong and right, you're going to lose the day, you know. And so I, I put the song together with our bass player, Andy Stoller, um, and now my 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 own son Curtis, who's now twenty one. Yeah, we wrote a song together. How cool to think about that thread of, you know, you're talking about your mom being a, a self-taught musician and, and playing the piano and then you, you know, building a career with your sister and, and now to see you doing your first solo record and, and your son is involved. It's such a cool family theme that runs through the creative process. <laughs> it's really neat. For sure, you know, and also with Sue Ennis on board, it's, it's like, a, it's, Totally another family member, oh, you know, because yeah. you can pick your family sometimes. <laughs> <That's cool. laughs> um. In late 2016, you formed uh, a band called Road Case Royale with Liv Warfield, who is known from her work with Prince. And the bridge of the debut single, Get Loud, says, Freedoms are taken away. Girls hit a wall one day. We stand for the light of today. We will stand proud. Um, and in terms of music, uh, women have made a lot of progress, thanks largely to pioneers like you and Anne. Um, but oh. as we kind of wind down this series we've been doing um, for Women's History Month, uh, what are some of the walls that remain that you see um, that still need to be dismantled so that women can have the same shot in, in rock music as the guys have? Oh, huh. yeah. There was a girl we worked with 
Lisa Del Bello that we wrote stuff with did some of her songs and she's extremely talented, brilliant and she handed over an album to her record company at the time and they said we need a man to produce this because mm. he produced it. Yeah. And so she said, okay, well I, I know a man that can produce this and so she took it back tweaked a little bit <laughs> turned it back in with a pseudonym, oh, wow. and they were like, "This is great," <laughs> oh, you know, with a guy's a guy's name, Connie, <laughs> Connie, <laughs> Connie Ted Slat. No, it wasn't that name, Ronnie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right? yeah. Wow. So interesting. Oh. You know, that's kind of the that's how they they get you out there and they lie to you. Yeah. Mm. Wow. Wow. I think there's a lot more independent thinking with women in music right now, like Phoebe Bridgers and Julian Baker. Mm. And, you know, there's just a lot of these stronger, um, more willful, I wouldn't say exactly uppity women, but <laughs> that's not not even derogatory with coming from me, you know? <laughs> it's good to kind of be a little bit of an uppity woman these days because... You do need to wear your armor a little bit more mm. if you're going to try to get out there in that business. And, you know, you have to be strong, independent, to not be fooled into or tricked into trying to make, let yourself be made into something that you're not. Yeah. Um, convinced, you know, to change, like what my mom says. Don't let them change who you are. Mm -hmm. Keep being yourself, no matter what. So I don't know. I think it depends on the woman who's entering the field, you know. But if you're not pretty headstrong and pretty aimed like a pistol, then you have to be careful of the other pitfalls of people trying to change your image, mm -hmm. you know. And the boys' club trying to take uh, control of your you know, steer your career for you. Well, uh, Nancy, this has been a fascinating conversation. Um, the, yeah, the, uh, yeah, the, the new album is you and me. We are super excited about that coming out in early May. I know our listeners, uh, will be as well. We want to just thank you for, um, taking some time to speak with us today. Well, I just, my pleasure. Uh, absolutely. My pleasure. Wonderful uh, questions and well-stated questions, and really fun to talk to you guys. Thanks for listening. We'd love to stay connected with you, so please take a moment to subscribe to Songcraft via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your podcast app of choice. If you like the show, we ask you to consider rating us and leaving us a good review. Word of mouth is important, and letting other potential listeners know what you think of the show helps us tremendously. You can also sign up for our email list at songcraftshow.com and find out how to help support us at patreon.com slash songcraftshow. And you can follow us on social media by searching for Songcraft Conversations on Instagram and Songcraft Show on Facebook and Twitter. And finally, be sure to check out our friends at the American Songwriter Podcast Network at americansongwriter.com. Thanks, as always, for listening and for your support.